Okay, while uh, everybody here is organizing themselves to take a seat, um, I'll get this thing, uh, get everything fixed up here in a minute. But just for those who are live streaming, if you have already hooked up on the live stream, then... Um, uh, Sandy, Sandra, there's some right down here on the table. You can take them all back there in case anybody else comes in. Um, thank you. Okay, if you're live streaming, there's a thing, uh, a handout attached to, I believe it's last week's lesson that's on the DBM website called God's Not Dead um, Script or Movie Review or something like that. I forget the exact title of it, but it's attached to that lesson. And so if you are live streaming or watching this on a video, then you need to go to that lesson and download that script because you can follow along. We're going to do something a little differently tonight. Uh, I had wrestled with this, how to pr best do this. I thought about showing film clips, but then you run into copyright problems and everything else. So I decided that we would just have two of the men in the congregation read the two main parts and there's a uh, woman's part in there that speaks, I think, two lines, and so I'll be gender confused this evening and read that part uh, at, when, at the appropriate time. But that way, everybody can, can hear it, and we can show it and talk about it, and it's going to be an exercise in sort of critical thinking skills. But anyway, my main point right now before I do the announcements and other things is just to have those who are live streaming or those who are watching on video to to go to the, the link on the website and download the, the, the script so you can follow along. Uh, there's basically three points in this film where the young man uh, named Josh Wheaton, the character named Josh Wheaton, uh, is presenting his case for God's existence. Okay. So while you all are doing that, just a reminder that we will be um, having Vacation Bible School the last week of July. And so if you or you know of anybody, you can get flyers, pass them out, and that can um, help to bring in some more kids for that, um, uh, for that event. Also, what else was there? My cheat sheet on announcements was gone. What else was there, Alan? There's a um, baptism. baptism. That's what it was, July 9th. So if anybody has that. Barb, the, uh, the, the script is still up there from last week's lesson. Okay, it's still attached. Okay, good. Okay, I think that's it. July 9th, baptism, and that's going to be at 1 o'clock at Grace Bible Church up near Willowbrook Mall. All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By keeping, taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can uh, think about, examine their lives to see if they have any unconfessed sin, and then um, make sure that's confessed in silent prayer before we begin. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening, and as we uh, take this particular lesson to apply what we've studied, what we've learned in the previous lessons on apologetics and how to give an answer for the hope that is within us, we pray that we might um, have uh, insight, that we might be able to expand and perhaps put some, some real uh, shoe leather on our uh, these somewhat abstract concepts so that we can each improve in the way we answer questions or present the gospel to others. And Father, we pray that you would use this uh, time for our spiritual uh, growth and our spiritual edification. We, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, 
Uh, we'll start in uh, a minute. I want to give a little introduction to what is going on in, uh, uh, in this film. In the film that I'm talking about, for those of you who haven't heard the other parts of this, is the first film, God's Not Dead 1. There's God's Not Dead 2, and God's Not Dead 3, I think, is just about finished production. And so uh, if you go out on the Internet, you can see a number of different reviews. Some are good, some are bad. Some of them uh, are very critical of the technical aspects of writing and uh, editing and acting. And I think for the most part, it's especially if you're a Christian, you've been around for very long, it's such an improvement over much that was done in the 60s, 70s, or 80s under the guise of Christian, Christian film and, and Christian, Christian, uh, Christian movies. Uh, it's um, from that perspective, that's not a perspective I want to talk about or want to critique. Um, but what I have read, the comments are God's Not Dead 2 is better on all of those accounts. One of the things that if you watch the film God's Not Dead 1, they have like seven plot lines going, six or seven plot lines with different people who are all uh, struggling with some aspect of their relationship to God. And it's not really clear how all of those other plot lines really fit within the main theme or thesis of the film. I think that was a little confusing. That was one of the things that was pointed out in several reviews. And in God's Not Dead 2, it says that they, they didn't have quite as many plot lines going, so it's not as confusing. What's positive and good about films like this and the case for Christ that was just released is that they can provide a very useful uh, foundation for discussion uh, with unbelievers as well as believers. Uh, the downside is that often the arguments that are presented because of the, 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 the venue in which they're presented, they can't get very deep or very complex in presenting some rather sophisticated arguments, but they do a pretty decent job uh, mo most, most ways. Um, but one of the positive values about this is that we can look at it uh, at the film and then talk about it. I know several of you have seen the film, some of you haven't seen the film, and what I've given you, and I think all of you have, is I've given you a handout of the script. Uh, John, did you get, get one? Okay, where are they? Sandy? Where'd Sandy go? Sandy disappeared. They were down here. They're back in the back somewhere. Uh, Barb and John need copies, please. Um, it, it gives you a chance, gives all of us a chance to, to talk about what's going on because we've all had these experiences. We've talked to somebody, uh, with the, tried to present the gospel. They've asked us questions and we either, A, we can't answer them or we give them an answer and then afterwards we think of all the things that we should have said and all the ways that we should have said them. And then we start kicking ourselves in the in the pants over that. And, and we all go through that. And let me tell you, after you've gone through seminary and to school and you've taught this as many times as I have, you never get away from it because we're fallen, corrupt creatures. There's no such thing as perfection. Thank God, as I pointed out, we have the Holy Spirit. And according to John 16, he is the one who is making the gospel clear. And he's the one who's making the issue clear. So no matter how many mistakes we make, we know that God, the Holy Spirit, is superintending uh, the whole process. And so when I do this kind of a critique of the film, I don't want anybody to get the idea of, well, this is, they really blew it. This isn't good. We shouldn't watch it. That there's no value to it and, and not do that. I think that you should. It's something that you should watch. You should listen to the evaluations here, think about it, and think about how you would do what this young man does in that kind of a, of a pressure situation. It's sort of like the Super Bowl. One team goes to the Super Bowl, usually it's the New England Patriots, and they win. And the, after all of the celebration is over with and everybody sobers up and relaxes, sometime in the spring they will get together and they will get the game films. 
And they look at the game films, and no matter how well they did, no matter how great their the, the score differential was with the other side, not every player did their best. Back there were flubs by almost every player because we're all human, we all fail, we all lack uh, the per perfect performance skills. And so they watch those films over and over again in order to self-critique, in order to understand what they did, why they did it, how they could do it better, so that the next time they can improve on their skill. And that's kind of what we're doing uh, tonight. We're going to analyze and evaluate the, the moves that are made and talk about it and see how it could be done better. And we'll all learn some things in, in the process. Uh, one caveat that I wanted to bring out is a weakness. If you read a book, for example, on the website we posted uh, Charlie's Early Framework 1 book on giving an answer, and in the last chapter he gives some sample dialogues, which are good to read through also. But there's always that, and whether it's a film, there's always a level of artificiality. Because when you finish, as a Christian writing, we want the unbeliever to become saved. We are, in a sense, making up a dialogue, and it's uh, so there's a level of, um, of, of what, do you, what would you call it? It's artificial, it's uh, contrived a little bit, but in this film, they really tried to stay away from that as best they could, and they do a, they do a pretty good job We've all had similar kinds of, of, of dialogue. In fact, what they did was they researched 30 different trial cases uh, or lawsuits involving Christian students bringing charges against uh, professors who discriminated against them in the same way that this professor does in the classroom, refusing to give them a good grade, kicking them out of class, intentionally failing them because uh, of their uh, religious beliefs, things like that. And so a lot of the verbiage that comes out of the mouth of the atheist uh, professor is taken from real-life circumstances, situations, transcripts uh, from trials. So the situation and the circumstance is very realistic. It not, may not be the kind of thing that your um, child or grandchild will necessarily face on campus, but it's realistic, and they very well c could. I have heard of many examples from Connecticut, from Texas, from other areas where similar kinds of situations happened in the classroom. I saw some that were not quite as extreme when I was a student in university, and that was several decades ago. So this kind of thing is not, um, is not just contrived, and we live in a culture where people who are vocal against Christianity are more and more the heroes. So uh, we as Christians need to know how to face and how to handle these things. Now, just a couple of things through the uh, slides that I want you to remember as we talk through this. These are the things that we've learned from all the biblical examples we've looked at, is that, first of all, people have a religious system, that this, this professor professes to be an atheist, but um, he believes in God. At one point, as a child, he was probably a believer, uh, and due to certain circumstances, the death of his mother when he was 11 years old, uh, he kept praying that God would heal her and that she wouldn't die. When she died, he took out all of his anger against God, and so he believed that God didn't exist and God was of no value. So uh, what's he doing? He's suppressing the truth, of just like Romans 1, 18 through 23 describes. Unbelievers are not spiritually neutral. Atheists are not spiritually neutral. No human being is spiritually neutral. No unbeliever is a true atheist. At the core of their soul, they know God exists. The purpose of a confrontation is not just to change the mind about God, but to bring them to salvation. Fourth questions that we ask expose unbelief and are designed to in either directly or indirectly challenge people to obedience to the scripture. Fifth thing we observed is that people are able to evaluate the evidence despite a prior commitment to suppress the truth. 
They're consistently reinterpreting it as the Apostle Paul did up until the point that, that the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Sixth, we saw that evidence that is presented again and again, the Bible presents evidence for uh, God's presence and for God's work, but it's not treated as neutral between the unbeliever and the believer. We've seen, point seven, that God uses historic facts and evidence to expose the unbeliever's sin and rebellion, and that often their reaction may be quite hostile. We also saw, coming from a different slide, that often it begins with questions, asking questions to bring out what people believe and what they mean. Second, the uh, person, the believer, should always assume the creator God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob exists. We're not taking a position of neutrality to try to prove God exists. What would be the basis for that? We may give evidence for the existence of God, but that's different from trying to argue for the existence of God or prove it. Third, uh, sometimes the focus is, as Elijah did on Mount Carmel, to point out the inadequacies of the other person's worldview, their inability to live on that basis. They've taken a position, so by asking questions, you demonstrate they can't live consistently with it. And fourth, realizing again, as I stated, that all men know God exists. They're suppressing that truth in various ways, but they know, and God the Holy Spirit is also working. So it's our job to simply present the truth and answer questions. And then, just to put this back in your minds again, that we have basically four different ways that we come to know truth. Through reason alone, called rationalism, Empiricism, which is through uh, the use of, of evidence, through the use of observation, the science, scientific method, uh, and mysticism, which is the idea that somehow intuitively we come to know truth, um, and revelation, God speaks. They each have a counterpart in terms of apologetic strategy. The first one is what was called classic apolog apologetics, now, I want to put this in your head. Think about this. I mentioned this. There's a chart in the back of uh, Ken Bow and Robert Bowman's book, um, Faith Has Its Reasons. And there they say that with regard to science, the classic apologist takes a view of creation that is sort of generic. Okay? That's the dominant view. Now, there are going to be exceptions to each of these, but that's the dominant view. In evidentialism, which is a counterpart to an empirical basis that man's reason is the point of common, our evidence is the point of common ground, facts, history, or science is, is neutral, that under uh, evidentialism, in terms of science, they usually believe in old earth creation, not a young earth creation. Under mysticism, it, the counterpart is fideism, just believe and you know, they usually have some form of theistic evolution. And then for the person who believes in the priority of revelation and is consistent with it and is a presuppositionalist, then the truth of Scripture is presupposed, and they usually believe in a young earth, young earth creation. And then one last chart to put in your minds, because we saw great evidence of it today. I assume most of you know what happened today. It has been talked about for a couple of weeks. Will Donald Trump, will President Trump take us out of the Paris uh, Treaty on Climate Treaty or not? And he did. And if you take the time to go on some website, you'll hear all of the horrible, angry, bitter, vile things that many celebrities have said about Donald Trump and accused him of, that he hates the earth, that he hates the human, all kinds of things. The anger, the emotion that's there. And see, this is what happens when you're thinking about uh, how to get down to the basic levels of how people think. It often starts at a surface level. In this case, it's a political or national decision and it immediately uh, goes to the first layer underneath. It exposes 
ethics. These people are angry. They think exactly, and we're going to see this in the film. These people think that what he has done is horrible. It's wrong. It's terrible. Where they, what value are they coming from? Where are they coming up with these values? See, emotion is important because it exposes certain things that are going on in a person's thinking. And, and we'll see some evidence of that. So as soon as you ask, well, where did you get that value? Then the next thing is, well, how do you know that value is true? That's the issue of knowledge, or as philosophers call it, epistemology. How do you know it's true? And then ultimately that takes you to, well, ultimate reality. What is ultimate reality? Is it matter? Is it nothingness? Is it a personal infant God? What philosophers call metaphysics. So with that, for a reminder, I'm going to have uh, uh, James and Gregory come up, and we're going to have them start reading through the script. Now, there's three points in the film where Josh Wheaton has to get up in front of this college classroom to express his argument. uh, Just stand down there, guys. Uh, To express his argument for the existence of God. The scenario is that what starts is that the... um, a professor who's an atheist and is angry with God, but that's not evident at this point in the film. The professor uh, comes along and at the beginning of this philosophy class tells his students that they, in order to get past all this God talk, which he thinks is just a waste of time, that he wants all of his students to write out and sign a statement that God is dead. And there's one student who's a committed Christian, and he's not going to do it. He won't sign it. And so the professor says, well, if you won't sign it, then why don't you come and present your case? Why don't you present your evidence for the existence of God and prove that God is not dead? And so that's what happens. And there's three times in the film when he does that. And that's what this, um, uh, what the script is that you have in front of you. And so we're going to... Um, Start with the first one, and uh, we'll start with uh, Josh Wheaton. He's the student, and he starts with the statement, atheists say that no one can prove the existence of God. Gregory is going to be Josh Wheaton, and uh, we're going to typecast James, because James was the science... Yeah, you put the atheist professor on the left there. Uh, he, was, he was the atheist science background unbeliever who uh, came to Preston City Bible Church. Um, and for the first few dates that he and Laura had, they were looking at Institute for Creation Research websites, talking about creation, evolution, and it, as the Lord worked on him over a year, that's when he came to understand the gospel and trust in Christ. So I thought we'd typecast him and uh, and he could... Do what? It took me more than three It took you more than three arguments. They didn't have time in the movie for that. It took you a year. Okay. All right. So, so Gregory, why don't you start? And I'll just, uh, since I've got a hot mic, I'll just uh, speak into it when I get the female student role. Atheists say that no one can prove the existence of God, and they're right. But I say that no one can disprove that God exists. But the only way to debate this issue is to look at the available evidence, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to put God on trial with Professor Radisson as the prosecutor, as me as the defense attorney, and you as the jury. Most cosmologists now agree that the universe began some 13.7 billion years ago in an event known as the Big Bang. So let's look at the theory the theoretical physicist and Nobel Prize winner Steven Weinberg's description of what the Big Bang would have looked like. And since he's an atheist, we can be sure there isn't any believer bias in his description. In the beginning, there was an explosion, and in three minutes, 98% of the matter there is or ever will be was produced. We had a universe. For 2,500 years, most scientists agree with Aristotle on the idea of a steady-state universe. That universe has always existed with no beginning and no end. But the Bible disagreed. In the 1920s, Belgian astronomer Georges Lemaitre, an atheist who was actually also... What 
What's a theist? A theist is someone who believes in the existence of God. He said that the entire universe jumping into existence in a trillionth of a trillionth of a second out of nothingness in an unimaginably intense flash of light is how he would expect the universe to respond if God were to actually utter the command in Genesis 1-3, let there be light. In other words, the origin of the universe unfolded exactly how one would expect after reading Genesis. And for 2,500 years, the Bible had it right and science had it wrong. You see, in the real world, we never see things jumping into existence out of nothingness. But atheists will make one small exception to this rule, mainly the universe and everything in it. But in his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins says that if you tell me God created the universe, then I have the right to ask, ask you, who created God? Dawkins' question only makes sense in terms of a God who has been created. It doesn't make sense in terms of an uncreated God, which is the kind of God Christians believe in. And even leaving God out of the equation, I then have the right to turn to Mr. Dawkins' own question back around on him and ask, if the universe created you, then who created the universe? You see, both the theist and the atheist are both burdened with answering the same question of how did things start. What I'm hoping you'll pick up on from all of this is that you don't have to commit intellectual suicide to believe in a creator behind the creation. And to the extent that you don't allow for God, you'd be pretty hard-pressed to find any credible alternative explanation for how things came to be. Well, I imagine you are quite pleased with yourself. I see you carefully avoid the fact that Stephen Hawking, the world's most famous scientist, and who's not a theist, has recently come out in favor of a self-designing universe. I haven't avoided it. I just didn't. You didn't know, you didn't know, you didn't know about it. Well, there we go. You just didn't know about it. Well, let's see what Professor Hawking chief professor of physics at Cambridge, who occupies a teaching chair once held by Sir Isaac Newton, has to say about the origin of the universe. And I quote, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing spontaneously. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something instead of nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. It's not necessary to invoke God to set the universe in motion, end quote. So you may have never come across his comment, but his point remains. How do you answer it? I don't know. Oh, you don't know. I pricked the balloon of your entire argument with a single pin, and you don't know. Hmm. Well, I mean, I'd like to tell you I have the perfect answer, but it doesn't shake my underlying faith. Okay, so the greatest scientific mind in all of history says that God is not necessary. But first semester freshman says, oh, yes, he is. Wow, you know, it's going to be a really tough choice. Well, I look forward to next week's lecture. Class is dismissed. All right, good job, guys. Okay, let's look at this a minute. What's going on here and what's the move? You guys can sit down for a second. Okay, what, as we look at this, go back to, I'm going to take you back to this chart here. What is Josh's strategy? Is he a classic apologist? Is he an evidentialist? Is he a uh, fideist? Or is he a presuppositionalist in this first argument? What do you think? Anybody have any idea? Ten weeks we've been talking about this, and you're like, mm, I don't know. I, I get an F. What is he? Classic apologist? I, I'm not quite. But that he, he's not looking at reason. He's looking, what's he going to do? The key statement is in the first paragraph. What was the first thing you said, Greg? The only way to debate this issue is to look at the available evidence. Okay, that's your key. That's your starting point. He's going to look at the avail, avail, available evidence. And then the next thing he says to the class 
is we're going to put God on trial. Professor Addison is the prosecutor, me as the defense attorney, and you as the, jur- as the jury. Okay, is that, is that right or wrong? If it's right, why is it right? If it's wrong, why is it wrong? Does anybody see a parallel with the biblical incident where God is put on trial? That's right. It's the same thing that Satan does with Eve in Genesis 3. We're going to put God's statement that if you uh, eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, you'll certainly die. We're going to put that on trial. God didn't really mean that, did he? I mean, that's Satan's approach. It's to take a human being to think they can judge God and that they can test God. Is there another incident where Satan tried to get someone to test God? Hmm? No, not Job. Christ in the desert. That's right. I don't know who said that, but that's it. Jesus in the, in the desert, the first wilderness tempta- temptation, and Jesus' response, he quotes scripture, don't test the Lord your God. We don't put ourselves in an authority over God. What would have been another way to have done this that would not have compromised God and put the students in that position where they're judging God? Yeah, put the scientist or put the professor on trial. We're going to put his statement on trial. We're going to evaluate him. Another thing that he could have done, because the the issue is the statement that he wants everybody to sign, that God is dead, uh, Josh could have said, what's, what's one of the key tactics that I've talked about when we're, we're, we're talking to somebody? Ask questions. What do you mean by God is dead? Do you mean that God doesn't exist or God never existed? When that phrase first came out historically, it really didn't mean God never existed, but that God is no longer needed to explain things. And God wasn't necessary. So, so what do you mean by God is not dead? When did you first come to this uh, idea? What were the circumstances around that? What evidence do you have that God doesn't exist? See, you're putting them on the defense. You're putting them on trial to expose their their thinking, uh, their, their values, and to ultimately expose what they think about, about ultimate reality. So uh, it seems subtle, and that's what I want to point out, because we think, okay, that we're going to look at the evidence. There's a right way to look at the evidence and a wrong way to look at the evidence, and he's exhibiting uh, a pure evidentialist uh, type of approach. And so the student should have started by asking questions and by uh, putting the professor and his position on trial. Then when we go a little bit further, he makes a statement down in the second paragraph most cosmologists now agree that the universe began some 13.7 billion years ago in an event known as the Big Bang. Do you think that he agrees with that or disagrees with that? Josh never makes a case that God created a young earth. He, he accepts the Big Bang as a valid explanation. In fact, he's going to say, he's going to quote from um, Weinberg's description and from um, um, Georges Lemaire's uh, explanation that is that's really a theistic evolution explanation that, that the Big Bang was how God brought everything into existence. But if you, if you look at um, the description in the beginning there's an explosion so there's something that explodes so you have the existence of matter and then there's this huge uh, explosion of light and from all of that comes the uh, stars comes the the uh, solar system comes planet earth but if you look at what the what the scripture says the scripture has a slightly different order of events. Uh, 
Let me find my... Look at Genesis chapter 1. Look at Genesis chapter 1. If you look at Genesis 1, somewhere up here I had this, somewhere I had a nice little chart. Okay, here we go. If you look at Genesis 1, now I'm going to take two, two approaches here from a conservative young earth view. View number one is the view that I hold. It's a young earth view, but there's a gap between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2, which is when you had the angelic fall and the satanic rebellion. So you'd have God creating the original universe, and it's very similar to the universe that exists that's described in the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21. There's no salt sea that comes later, and there's no darkness. Revelation 21, 1, with the new heavens and new earth, John says, I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. And as I say in the Genesis series, the salt sea, the presence of the salt sea in Scripture is is negative. It's a consequence of sin. Um, and so it's the deep that's mentioned in Genesis 1-2, that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. In Revelation 21-23, John describes the new heavens and new earth, that the city, that is the New Jerusalem, had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. So there's an earth, and there's the city of the New Jerusalem and all the inhabitants of the earth, but there's no sun, there's no moon, there's no stars, there's no solar system. There's no, uh, none of those things in the new heavens and new earth, just the earth. And so um, he goes on to say, there's no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is the light. God's presence illuminated the universe. So I argue that that was the case in the original heavens and earth created in Genesis 1-1, that there's no salt sea, there's, no, there's light, and then something happens and there's darkness. And that's Genesis 1-2. That represents the fall. So you originally have light. Then you have darkness. And so you just have the empty box of the space-time continuum of the, of the universe. And there's just one planet, the Earth. And you don't have the sun and the moon and the stars created until the fourth day. Now, that's not the same order that you have if you go with the Big Bang. And what happens in theistic evolution is they try to say, well, Moses didn't get the order quite right, and they express their order and see it's just kind of general, and you can blend them together. But what I'm showing is you can't make the kind of statement that, that Josh makes that that this is how you'd expect the universe to respond if God actually uttered the command in Genesis 1-3. The order is different. So he's compromised Scripture in the way he is presenting his case for God. This is consistently what happens with in classic apologetics and evidentialism is that they, they, most they get is probability. They've compromised their underlying view of God because of their methodology, not necessarily not necessarily what they say. Um, later on, if you look down a little bit after the second female student makes her statement about Richard Dawkins, you have a hint of presuppositionalism there. Uh, Josh says, Dawkins' question only makes sense in, in terms of a God who has, been, uh, who has been created. It doesn't make sense in terms of an uncreated God which is the kind of God Christians believe in. See, he's, he should have started with this. As a Christian, the kind of God the Bible talks about is a creator God who is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. This is the God I'm going to tell you about. That's what Paul does on, on Mars Hill. He doesn't try to prove that. He says, this is what we believe. If you go back, some of you can do this. If you go back and you look at the debate between Bill Nye and um, who's the guy who started answering? Ken Ham at Answers in Genesis. Ken Ham is a consistent presuppositionalist, and he never steps back to try to prove God exists. He assumes the existence of a triune creator God all the way through. So that's that's that strategic uh, kind of uh, kind of difference. 
And then, of course, the professor tries to hit him with the gotcha question at the end, and that sets up the second debate. Anybody have any questions about what I've said or comments about what went on in that first, first episode? Is this helpful? Or are you you're confused? Okay, I did see some nods, so that's good. Okay, let's go with the second debate, and that starts when he comes back the next day or the next class period, and he is going to uh, present a response to um, the uh, professor's quote from Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking also wrote a book called The Grand Design, which says the following, Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. To be honest, I didn't know how to refute that. I mean, after all, Hawking is clearly a genius. But Professor John Lennox, who teaches mathematics and philosophy, has demonstrated that there are not one, even two, but three errors of logic contained in that one simple sentence, and it all boils down to circular reasoning. Hawking is basically saying that the universe exists because the universe needed to exist, and because the universe needed to exist, it therefore created itself. It's like this. If I say to you that I can prove that Spam is the best tasting food that's ever existed because in all of history no food has ever tasted better, you'd probably look at me strange and say I haven't proven anything, and you'd be right. All I've done is restate my original claim. But when Hawking claims that the universe created itself because it needed to create itself and then offers that as an explanation as to how and why it was created, we don't immediately recognize that he's doing the same thing, but he is, prompting Lennox to further comment, nonsense remains nonsense, even when spoken by famous scientists, even though the general public assumes they are statements of science. This is the height of hubris. Are you telling me that you, a freshman, are saying that Stephen Hawking is wrong? No. What I'm saying is that John Lennox, a professor of mathematics and philosophy, has found Professor Hawking's reasoning to be faulty, and I agree with his logic. But, but if you can't bear to disagree with Hawking's thinking, then I suggest that you turn to page 5 of his book, where he insists philosophy is dead. And if you're so sure Professor Hawking's infallibility and philosophy really is dead, then, uh, well... There's really no need for this class. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, for the last 150 years, Darwinists have been saying that God is unnecessary to explain man's existence and that evolution replaces God, but evolution only tells you what happens once you have life. So, where did that something that's alive come from? Well, Darwin never really addresses it. He assumes maybe some lightning hit a stagnant pool full of the right kind of chemicals. Bingo. A living something. But uh, that's just not that simple. You see, Darwin claimed that the ancestry of all living things came from that one single simple organism which reproduced and was slowly modified over time to, into the complex life forms we view today which is why, after contemplating his own theory, Darwin uttered his famous statement, Natura non facit saltum, meaning, nature does not jump. Well, as noted, author Lee Strobel pointed out that if you can picture the entire 3.8 billion years that scientists say life has been around as one 24-hour day, in the space of just about 90 seconds, most major animal groups suddenly appear in the forms in which they currently hold, not slowly and steadily, as Darwin predicted, but in evolutionary terms, almost instantly. So, nature does not jump becomes nature makes a giant leap. So, how do theists explain this sudden outburst of new biological information? And God said, Let the waters teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
Genesis 1, verse 20. In other words, creation happened because God said that it should happen. And even what looks to our eyes to be a blind, unguided process could really be divinely controlled from start to finish. Good job, Greg. Okay, let's let's take a look at this. What what's going on in this in this second uh, second maneuver is that uh, Josh is pretty much reacting to um, to what was said. Wait a minute, I'm missing a page. Uh, he's pretty much reacting to what what he's been saying. And so the first thing that he does is he looks at he looks for a refutation. Or evidence to use against the quote from uh, from Stephen Hawking. Now, I'm going to switch over here if I can find it. I have it here somewhere, um, and put something up, up over here on the on the screen, so you get a little a little bit of background on this. One of the things that you, you and I are not told when we go see the film is this film was highly influenced by a, a book called. Strangely enough, God's not dead, and it was written by a uh, particular author whose name, if I can, okay, here we go. Who is that? It? Okay, we're going to shift over here to this guy, Rice Brooks who's the co-founder of a ministry called Every Nation Family of Churches. So it's his book and that, that informs a lot of the arguments here. He's the real apologist who's influencing the film, and he's a old-earth theistic evidentialist. Now, what's a positive value here is Josh is taking a really strong stand for creation, but he's not taking a strong enough stand for creation. What's interesting is if you go on some of the websites and you read some of the statements, uh, there's a few positive, I mean, there's a few good uh, critiques of the film from doing something similar to what, what we're doing here. And then you'll have a lot of comments from people. Oh, no, no, he believes in creation. You didn't listen. One of the things that people do Often, I see this all the time, is somebody says, I believe God created the heavens and the earth. You say, he believes what I believe. He's a good creationist. And you read your view into what they said instead of letting them talk, reading between the lines to understand what their view is. And I saw this over and over again in, in viewer comments that they imputed to Josh what they thought he was saying about creation. And so just to put this up there in terms of background. Now, another thing to point out is this is an article written by, um, let me get up here, uh, John Lennox. Uh, John Lennox wrote a book to refute Stephen Hawking's statement that the universe was self-generated or self-created. And in the middle of this, he points out something that's very important. In fact, I've had people email in questions to me about this because I constantly make the statement that modern science, Western European science, which is the only true development of science in the history of the world, was the result of Judeo-Christian values coming to play in their understanding of things. And in the middle of this article, he makes the statement... find it down here. He says, the very reason science flourished so vigorously in the 16th and 17th centuries was precisely because of the belief that the laws of nature, which were then being discovered and defined, reflected the influence of a divine lawgiver. One of the fundamental themes of Christianity is that the universe was built according to a rational, intelligent design. Now, Linux is an intelligent design guy. He's not a young earth guy either, but he has good facts here. He says, uh, far from being at odds with science, the Christian faith actually makes perfect scientific sense. 
Some years ago, the scientist Joseph Needham made an epic study of technological development in China. Needham died in the 90s. He wrote his classic work, I think it was in the uh, in the 70s, on uh, science and technology in China. A huge work of research. And he basically brought up things that I've brought up before, but it's good to have a good source for this, is that the Chinese invented a number of things. We know they invented gunpowder. We know they invented paper. They invented a number, number of other things, but it never went anywhere. They never developed it. Why? Because their metaphysical worldview didn't have a creation that was ordered by a god who sovereignly oversaw uh, the laws of nature so that what they observe today would be true tomorrow. And you see the same thing with Islam. Islam has an arbitrary Allah. He's not the God of the Bible. And he can arbitrarily change things tomorrow. So they never developed science either. Only when you had people who were taking the Bible seriously that there were laws that you can count on that, that, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that the law of gravity today is going to be the same tomorrow, next year, next century, and, ten, and ten centuries from now. Are you going to formulate uh, a foundation based on a solid ultimate view of reality and a solid view of knowledge to develop science? So this is what he says. Some uh, Linux talks about and says, some years ago, the scientist Joseph Needham made an epic study of technological development in China. He wanted to find out why China, for all of its early gifts of innovation, had fallen so far behind Europe in the advancement of science. He reluctantly came to the conclusion that European science had been spurred on by the widespread belief in a rational creative force known as God, which made all scientific laws comprehensible. See, how many times have you heard me say, you can't talk, you can't think, you can't exercise logic if you don't presuppose God? Because without God, there's no order given to anything in God's creation because as a Christian, we understand every fact is what it is because God created it. And so we, th we must think and act on that presupposition. And we can't step away from it without being inconsistent. So this is reluctantly recognized by Needham. So uh, he critiques Hawking because of this. Let me see if there was something else I put up here. Okay, here was an interview. If you go to the godsnotdead.org website, you can see an interview between Rice Brooks and John Lennox, who's, who's quoted, in the, uh, quoted in the film. Okay, back to PowerPoint. Okay, so what he's doing here is he uh, st strategically, what he's showing is that Hawking's reasoning is flawed. He's doing the same thing Elijah did on Mount Carmel, that the priests of Baal's logic, their reasoning, their belief system is, is not going to sustain them. Uh, it doesn't work in reality. And so he's he's doing that. That is a... Uh, uh, an approach, a tactic that is consistent with uh, with presuppositionalism, but um, but so but nevertheless, in this, he's assuming certain things about creation that are not that evident to unless you go back and you know about Rice Brooks and these other things. They're not that evident, but nevertheless, that's what what's informing him. The last thing I want to comment on is in both of these first two episodes, what is the doctrine that is the focal point in both both presentations? Hmm? Creation. Creation. Creation is not some secondary idea that's not significant or relevant to understanding the gospel. That's why I pointed out every time we see Paul talking to an audience, or we see Peter talking to a Jewish audience, they're presupposing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is the creator God. And for Paul, he establishes and identifies his God as the creator God of all things before he ever gets to a point where he can talk about the cross or resurrection. Creation is not 
some secondary idea that creationists have decided to make an important debating point that, that doesn't reflect the Bible. It is central to these guys' uh, presentation to identify who the God is that they're talking about. Okay, let's go to the third debate. The third, uh, the third debate talking, and the focus here is going to be on, um, on the problem of evil. Okay, guys? It has been said that evil is atheism's most potent weapon against the Christian faith. And it is. After all, the very existence, evil, very existence of evil begs the question, if God is all good and God is all powerful, why does he allow evil to exist? The answer at its core is remarkably simple, free will. God allows evil to exist because of free will. From the Christian standpoint, God tolerates evil in this world on a temporary basis so that one day those who choose to love him freely will dwell with him in heaven free from the influence of evil but with their free will intact. In other words, God's intention concerning evil is to one day destroy it. Well, how, how convenient. God says, one day I will get rid of all the evil in the world, but until then, you just have to deal with all the wars and holocausts, tsunamis, poverty, starvation, and AIDS. Have a nice life. Next, he will be lecturing us on moral absolutes. Well, why not? Professor Radisson, who's clearly an atheist, doesn't believe in moral absolutes, but his course syllabus says he plans to give us an exam during finals week. Now, I am betting that if I manage to get an A on the exam by cheating, he will suddenly start sounding like a Christian, insisting it is wrong to cheat, that I should have known that. And yet, what basis does he have? If my actions are calculated to help me succeed, then why shouldn't I perform them? For Christians, the fixed point of morality, what constitutes right and wrong, is a straight line that leans directly back to God. So you're saying that we need a God to be moral? That a moral atheist is an impossibility? No, but with no God there is no re real reason to be moral. There is not even a standard of what moral behavior is. For Christians, lying, cheating, stealing, and my example, stealing a grade I didn't earn, are forbidden as a form of theft. But if God does not exist, as Dostoevsky famously pointed out, if God does not exist, then everything is permissible. And not only permissible, but pointless. If Professor Radisson is right, then all of this, all of our struggle, all of our debate, whatever we decide here, is meaningless. I mean our lives, our deaths, are of no more consequence than that of a goldfish. Come on, this is ridiculous. So... After all of your talk, you're saying that it comes down to a choice, believe or don't believe? That's right. That's all there is. That's all there's ever been. The only difference between your position and my position is that you take away their choice. You demand that they choose the box marked, I don't believe. Yes, because I want to free them. Because religion is like, it's like a mind virus that, parents have passed on down to their children. And Christianity is the worst virus of all. It slowly creeps into our lives when we're weak or sick or helpless. So religion is like a disease? Yes, yes, it infects everything. It's the enemy of reason. Reason? Professor, you left reason a long time ago. What you are teaching here isn't philosophy. It's not even atheism anymore. What you're teaching is anti-theism. It's not enough that you don't believe... You need all of us to not believe with you. Why don't you admit the truth? You just want to ensnare them into your primitive superstition. What I want is for them to make their own choice. That's what God wants. You have no idea how much I'm going to enjoy failing you. Who are you really looking to fail, Professor? Me or God? Do you hate God? That's not even a question. Okay, why do you hate God? This is ridiculous. Why do you hate God? Answer the question. You've seen the science and the arguments. Science supports his existence. You know the truth. So why do you hate him? Why? It's a very simple question, Professor. Why do you hate God? Because he took everything away from me. 
Yes, I hate God, and all I have is hate for him. How can you hate someone if they don't exist? You've proven nothing. Maybe not, but they get to choose. Is God dead? There we go. Now, good job. Okay, now when we look at this, what we see in this last episode is really where he should have started. Here he get, has a tr presuppositional approach. He is doing two things. He is, uh, he, he is he's assuming that God exists because from the very beginning he talks about uh, this basic problem of evil, he presents that, and he, then he says, from the Christian standpoint, this is why God allows evil. And so he's not waffling or, 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 or trying to wobble away from that. And then when uh, the professor starts to come in, he recognizes that what the professor is doing is what I talk about in this slide. He is immediately making an ethical decision about what is right or what is wrong, and he is implying in his statement that, well, I just get uh, the world, all you have to do is deal with all the wars and Holocaust, tsunamis, poverty, etc., have a nice life. See, he's implying this is wrong. He's judging God by that statement. And so immediately he sees that's the, that's the weakness, and he can now take this ethical decision and drive it down and show that it's the professor can't can't live uh, consistently with that because and that gets down to uh, revealing his epistemology about knowing right or wrong and he points out that that the professor if he comes along if he finds out that a student is cheated then he's not going to allow that because it's wrong well where does he get that value only Christianity has this value of, of uh, right or wrong, and only if you have a righteous God do you have a fixed point of reality. So he's showing that he can't live on the basis of and within the framework of his own, uh, of his own system. And what happens at that point is he begins to get, um, to get angry, and that emotion is what reveals what this guy believes. And he uses that to ask questions to try to further expose uh, what the problem is so that he gets to the point where he virtually, before he asks that question about, well, how can you hate somebody if they don't exist, the uh, professor's response is, why do you hate God? And he says, because he took everything away from me. You can't make a statement like that unless you believe that, that God exists. You, you, he's admitted it. He has exposed that suppression mechanism there via the anger uh, that's there. And that's what happens in life is that, that when something happens and we have emotion, that is a window into a belief system. So... That last one is is a, a an example of a presuppositional uh, presuppositional approach. So we've just about come out run out of time. Anybody have any questions? Any other observations or thoughts that have popped up in in your mind as you've seen this, heard, listened to it, and talked about it? Any ideas? Well, yes, I do. What's your question? Yes. That nincompoop. Uh, and he says, now there's the law of gravity. That's just where, where you stop him right then and there. Just a minute. Where did that come from? Right, that's right. Well, that's what, that's what Linux points out. That's one of his logical flaws is that right then and there. he should have. He should have. That's, that's a good point. Where does he get that? And, of course, pointing out the other, uh, the other logical flaws were clearly... Uh, clearly evident because he has the he, he he personalizes the universe as if it's intelligent. It's going to create itself because it knows it has a need. He's implying all of that. So that's and he has a circular reasoning there. That's the third logical fallacy. Well, how they know that it took three minutes? Excuse me. 
The Big Bang took three minutes. Well, that's what one, that's what well, it was either Lemaire or the other guy that said. Fool is a better word, <laughs> Catherine. Yes, he is a fool because he has said in his heart there is no God. Fool. God's words are better. Psalm 42. Yes. But yes, but what, what's the? But you're making the point. Is he's not presupposing and standing on the scripture. When Jesus is in the guard is in the wilderness, what's Jesus standing on? He's standing on the word of God. He doesn't compromise it. So yes, your points are well taken. Very good. I'll give you an A. Okay. If there's no other questions, we'll we'll close in prayer. Now, what I want to do over the next two or three class periods, and and this has become more complicated than I thought it would be, is I I think each of us, it's helpful for us as a training, and remember that's part of what education is, is to train people not only how to think but what to think and what to do, is if somebody makes certain statements to you, well, how can you trust the Bible? Um how do we handle that? You can throw it back and say, well, why wouldn't you think you can trust the Bible? I think I read somewhere in all of my reading recently that, that the vast number of people who claim you can't believe the Bible because it says strange things have never read the Bible. And so you throw it back on them. Ask them. Put, put them on the defensive. But uh, what I want to do is try to think about how do we know the Bible's true? Five basic reasons. Boom, 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 boom. And then do that with the with the uh, deity of Christ, resurrection, miracles, and just just try to package something small. Not try to cover all the bases and hit everything that we can hit, but just three or four basic things that can come to your mind. If you were, I said this at the very beginning, if you were a Mormon, if you were a Jehovah's Witness, if you were in some other cult, you would be so trained that when you go door knocking, or like the other day when I was out walking in a neighborhood park back here, there were some Jehovah's Witnesses with their little booth set up, and if you were to talk to them, they're going to know exactly what your rebuttals are going to be, what your objections are going to be, and they have a canned pat answer for everything. But as evangelicals, we don't train people like that. But we are constantly getting into conversations and we go, I got that in Bible class somewhere. I don't know where those notes are anymore, but I know I've heard that. Well, we should be able to get things in 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 uh, in a concise format in our head where we can begin to think through things. But we all have this problem. Somebody asks us that, and our brain freezes. Now, I know that probably hasn't happened to you. It happens to me. I was talking to Charlie about this several weeks ago, and he said, I always think of the best things to say three days later. And that's common for all of us. So if we think about it a little more, then it'll be more towards the front of our mind. Okay, Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity that we have through the technology and everything else to be able to uh, think, evaluate, use this as a, as a critical thinking exercise to help, help us improve our own thinking and to sharpen our own thinking so that we can... Um, be clearer when we present the gospel and when we answer questions that people ask so that we can um, give an answer graciously and with humility for the hope that is within us and that we can make the gospel clear, ultimately bringing people to a point of understanding the cross. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.